We are going to continue in our series on First and Second Peter. We're in Second Peter right now, uh, and so if you would please stand out of respect for the Word of God. Um, we are in Second Peter chapter one, verses five and seven. If you'll recall, if you were here last week or listened to it online, I said it's two verses, but there is so much to unpack here, and so we're just kind of going chunk by chunk, segment by segment. Uh, and so I'm going to start reading in verse three again, like I did last week, but then we'll be finishing with verse seven. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for how good you are to us, for your mercies that are new, your love and your grace that is never-ending for the freedom that is in you. We thank you that we have a chance to gather this morning as, as your bride, as the body, as the church, to worship you and to celebrate who you are. We ask that this would be a continuation of worship. May this be pleasing and acceptable to you. Quiet us now. Teach us from your word as only you can. May these be your words. May we listen with ears opened by you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So last week we looked at make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And none of those lessons are now out the window because we've moved on. Everything we looked at last week still applies this week. It sets the foundation for this week. Make every effort to supplement. Does anybody remember uh, some of the words that we used in relation to supplement? One starts with an L, L-A-V, lavishly. This is not meager supplementation. This is not, hey, let me add the bare minimum. Hey, let me add just a few scraps. This is a lavish supplement. This is a rich addition where you are making every effort, you're doing everything in your power to increase these in your own life as we seek to be more and more like Jesus. This is the call on our lives. It's got to begin with faith. It's got to begin with an awareness of God's will and a submission to it, a conformity to it. We looked at virtue, visible excellence. And so that sets the table for what he now gets into with where we're going to look at this week, beginning with, all right, so I've made every effort, I've supplemented my faith with virtue, he says, and now virtue with knowledge. Is relationship important when it comes to Christ, walking with Christ? Yeah. That's why I make it all about relationship. Check your intellect at the door. Faith is all about relationship. Well, if that's the case, then when Jesus came, why didn't he just hang out with people? If faith, if being a Christian is about relationship and nothing more, why did Jesus spend so much time teaching? Oh, yeah, I didn't think about it that way. That's right. Faith is all about knowledge. 
It's just nothing more than education, learning, absorption of this information. It's all about knowledge. That's what faith is all about. Okay, well then why did Jesus even come? Why didn't God just send down a couple of books? Wouldn't that have saved time? Oh, uh, huh. So maybe it's about both. And maybe if we look at that original word for knowledge, which you guys know I love to do, we'll see that, and this is why the original language matters. See, this Greek word for knowledge that's used here, that's used throughout the New Testament. Like I started to on this slide include just quick call outs to where we saw this idea of knowledge appear in the New Testament. And I got through Acts and had like over 10 references up there. I was like, oh, we still have like 18 books to get through. Guys, this word appears constantly in the New Testament. So when you see it, it's helpful to know and understand, and it takes us deeper to understand and know that this is application knowledge derived from relationship. You cannot separate relationship. You cannot separate learning and education. If you do either one, you're left with an incomplete picture of what Jesus offers, of what Jesus did for the disciples, and of what God calls us to today. Parents, I have to imagine, you'd be kind of annoyed if you sent your kid to school and they came home. Hey, what'd you learn today? Nothing, we just hung out with the teacher. Oh, that's cool. Okay, well, maybe tomorrow after they build that foundational relationship. Hey, what'd you learn Tuesday? Nothing, we just hung out. And a month later, what'd you learn in school? Nothing, we just hung out. I'm betting the district superintendent is getting a few phone calls. And I bet you would also be equally upset if you were like, hey, how do you like your teacher? Oh, I don't know. We go in and we sit in the classroom and they just drop a stack of papers on our desk. There is no teacher. So you cannot separate either the teacher or the education from biblical knowledge. And the knowledge we get, the education we receive, the learning we go deeper in is only as strong as the relationship with the teacher. It's this beautiful symbiotic Oh, man, you're not supposed to use the word in the definition. Uh, relationship. But relationship and education are in beautiful harmony. There we go. Beautiful harmony, beautiful coexistence in biblical knowledge. So when Peter is calling the church, hey, make every effort to add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, he is calling the church, make every effort to pursue a more meaningful fellowship with God. But in that, there should be learning taking place. You should be progressing to a deeper, more mature understanding and ability to articulate this. Remember, what is one of the underlying themes of 2 Peter? Identifying false teachers, identifying false teaching and dealing with it. So without education, without understanding, you're going to struggle to recognize a false teacher. So this is the Greek word for knowledge. And it's the same idea as the Hebrew word for knowledge. And this is why I love it. And in each, each of these, the Greek and the Hebrew add such beautiful components to really understanding what Peter is getting at when he says, make every effort to add knowledge. So the Greek word, you have this foundational relationship component. And then in the Hebrew word for knowledge that's used in the same vein, it's talking about knowledge of the highest kind, that of God, which leads to obedience. See, the idea of knowledge, true knowledge, truly being wise as a Christian, you cannot separate that from conformity to the will of God, to submission to the will of God. You cannot separate a response of obedience. 
You can't say I'm wise and knowledgeable and if there's not evidence of obedience in your life. And we see this. I mean, consider these verses. Proverbs 15, 14. The discerning heart seeks knowledge. Proverbs 23, 12. Apply your heart to instruction and your ears to words of knowledge. Jeremiah 22, 15 through 16. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is this not to know me, declares the Lord. God's talking to the king in Jeremiah. And he's saying, well, you think you're in this position of prominence because of how good you are? You think things are going well because of who you are? No, your father got it right. He did it right. He did it well. What did he do? He listened to my statutes and he did them. This is what it means to know me. To be aware of my will and to apply it. This is knowledge. What happens when we neglect this? Hosea 4, 1 and 6. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. O children of Israel, is God talking to the people who don't believe in Him or, or the people who believe in Him? People who believe in Him. Don't miss that in this. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. My people are destroyed for lack of of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge I reject you from being a priest to me and since you have forgotten the law of your God I also will forget your children we looked at the stats a couple weeks ago the percentage of evangelical Christians those who claim to be evangelical Christians who don't believe Jesus is God the percent of evangelical Christians who believe that all religion is pleasing to God, all worship is pleasing to God, it's all one and the same. The people who don't believe the Bible is true, who profess to be Christians. Guys, the church's greatest threat is not external. The church's greatest threat comes from within. It's biblical illiteracy. It's a rejection of God's truth. It's a rejection of God's standards. That is what is crippling the church today. A lack of knowledge. We don't know God's will, so we're not even close to doing God's will. There's no relationship and there's no learning. God calls this out from the beginning, but he gives us the solution. He says, know me. And this isn't a burden. This isn't a big, scary task. This isn't some daunting obstacle. You're thinking, man, I hated school. I couldn't wait to be done. The moment I had, I had a friend, he was awesome. Bobby, Bobby in high school. And every year, he'd be like, hey, happy birthday, Bobby. And he would say the same thing every year. He'd say, yeah, you know why? One year closer till the state can't make me show up here. He turned 18, that was the last time Bobby set foot through the doors of an institution of education. This isn't that. This isn't something we have to be afraid of. This isn't something we have to shrink back from. This isn't something we have to resist. No, this is a privilege. This is an honor. This is the greatest right any of us have to know God, to be in relationship with Him, to be in fellowship with Him, to know Him, to hear His will, and to do it. Consider David. 
Consider David in Psalm 21. What title does David have that we don't see anyone else in Scripture be given? A man after God's own heart. So you better believe that when David says something about his relationship with God, his walk with the Lord, I'm going to pay attention. I mean, we should pay attention to all of it. It's all Scripture. But David is a man after God's own heart. Listen to how David describes this. O Lord, in your strength, the king, he's the king, he's talking about himself in third person. O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices, and in your salvation, how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips, Selah. Selah is that word that means pause. David includes it in the Psalms when he's like, hey, pause, hold up. Did you get what I just said? Think about what I just said. So church, think about what David just said. David just said, I rejoice in this. You have given me the desire of my heart. You have given me the request of my lips. Pause. Whoa, David's about to get into something serious. What is the request of his heart? What is the request of his lips? What is it that he desires? For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Going to the Lord to learn from him is not a chore. It's not homework. It's not a task to be checked off and move on to the next thing. It is a delight to open God's word and learn from it. To sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him. There is no greater joy in my life. There is nothing that I love more. This is the rich blessing of the church knowledge. And we are called to make every effort to increase in it. Remember last week we talked about every effort and we said every effort is not synonymous with overexhaustion. Every effort is not synonymous with just jam as much into your schedule as possible and that's the holy thing to do. No. God is a God of rest. You cannot avoid rest when you read through Scripture. One of the best things my wife and I have done in our lives, I believe, in my walk with God is we have carved out the Sabbath and you don't touch the Sabbath. <laughs> you guys know me. You know I've got pretty much one speed. Push the pedal through the floor of the car. You know what I did yesterday on Sabbath? Nothing. I sat on the couch and read. I played with Violet. I took a walk outside. I rested. So make every effort is not synonymous with, okay, well, let me just be so busy, and that's the key to success as a Christian. No. But make every effort means we should be able to look at our schedules and see time set aside for God. So if you look at your schedule, if you look at your daily schedule, your weekly schedule, your monthly schedule, when you look at how you spend your time, can you truthfully say, yes, I am making every effort to be alone with God in his word to learn from him. I am making every effort to grow in knowledge. Bible study with a group of other believers, I'm there. 
opportunities to sit and pray and open scripture together, yeah, you better believe I'm there. I am making every effort to grow in knowledge. Can you look at the way you spend your time and say this is true of you? This is what Peter calls the church to. It's what we have the opportunity to pursue. And then he goes on and he says, in addition to knowledge, because what will it take to do that? I love reading. I, I, I genuinely, I mean, my buddy one time in the district office was like, man, I hate to break it to you. You're kind of a nerd. And I was like, hate to break it to you, man. I've been a nerd since I was six. You're not giving me new information. My parents' punishment of me was, if you don't stop doing that, we won't take you to the library. Some of you just lost all respect for me. Guess what? I don't always feel like reading. I don't always feel like sitting down and opening scripture. I'm going to be honest and say that. So what will it require to make every effort to pursue an increase of this? It will take self-control. This word that he uses, self-control, where he says, make every effort to add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge self-control. This word that he's using there, it actually means self-mastery. So the question self-control is getting at is, who's the boss? Yourself, your sinful desires, your sinful flesh that you're going to wage battle with every day? Or you under the influence of the Holy Spirit? Who's the master? Who's the boss? This is vital for the Christian to figure out and to pursue. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. See, what we allow to master ourselves indicates a great deal about where our heart is and what we love. So what's our master? Proverbs 16, 32, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. I talk about warfare, I talk about battle, I talk about the fight we're in. We are. More than being a warrior who takes a city, God says it's important for me to be a man of self-control. Everybody wants to be Braveheart. Everybody wants to be the hero on the front lines, knocking down the doors. God says it's better to be a person of self-control. Proverbs 25, 28, why? Because a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. And keep in mind, he's writing this at a time when the wall was the thing that kept the city safe. The wall was what protected the food storage. The wall was what protected the lives of the people. A city without walls was pointless. It was susceptible to every attack by the enemy. It was weak. It would not serve its function. God says in the Bible, a person without self-control is like a city without walls. You're in a whole lot of trouble. But, before we get dismayed, before we start feeling down, what have we already looked at in 2 Peter? Verse 3. 
He has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. What do we look at in that sermon? We look at if God calls us to something, he equips us for that thing. He doesn't leave us high and dry. God said, hey, make every effort to add knowledge. Wait a minute, I'm not a good student. How am I supposed to do this? Oh yeah, John 14 and John 16, where Jesus said you will receive the Holy Spirit and he will guide you into all truth and understanding. Oh cool, he's equipped me to grow in knowledge. God says, hey, make every effort to increase self-control, to add self-control to your life. Ooh, wait a minute, that's hard. How do I do this? Well, what's Scripture say? 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do, not, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul says, I keep my body, I keep my life under self-control. Wait a minute, that's Paul. He's up on a pedestal. Nope. What else do we look at in this letter already? Attain the faith of the same standing as ours. So if Paul and his faith and his walk with the Holy Spirit has the capacity for self-control, you and I have the capacity for self-control as believers filled by the Holy Spirit. Why else can we say this confidently? 2 Timothy 1.7 God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. We've got what we need for it. It goes back to the question I asked at the start of this letter. It's not, hey, God, I need more from you. You didn't give me enough. It's, God, am I fully submitted to what you gave me? Am I fully submitted to what you have provided for me and called me to? He's given us a spirit of self-control. So am I making every effort to submit to that? This is going to look different for us. When we think of self-control, a lot of times we go to food. Shouldn't have had that third slice of pie. In my case, shouldn't have eaten that second pound of chocolate. That was a bad call. Christmas Day. I want to finish my stocking within the first three minutes of opening all that chocolate. So we immediately go to food when we think of self-control, and that's a part of it. I'm not, I'm not belittling that, demeaning that. Absolutely. There are absolutely times where we struggle with self-control when it comes to food, but really that's a self-control of impulses. Maybe it's not gluttony, maybe it's lust. That physical desire that you need to satiate right now, got to have it. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's you can't walk by something in the store without buying it and your credit card debt is out of control. When you look at your physical life, your physical appetites, are you in self-control? Or has yourself mastered you? Are you in control of your tongue? Or has your tongue mastered you? Are you prone to gossip? Are you prone to deceit? Are you in control of your heart? Are you prone to envy? Are you prone to panic and anxiety? And I'm not talking about medical, I'm talking about a spirit of anxiety. Anger. Man, somebody says, you know, like, somebody says the wrong thing, boy, will I snap off. I've got a long fuse, but once it ignites, boom, get out of the room. Who's the boss? You or your emotions? You are your tongue. You are your thoughts. You are your impulses. You are your desires. Believer, make every effort to add self-control to your life. We've talked about this a number of times. 
take thoughts captive, train our bodies, come up with responses, know how we're going to fight in the moment. Why? Because this is what we've been equipped for. This is what we've been called to. So this ought to be what we pursue. Make every effort to add self-control. Man, this sounds hard. This is a lot. Yeah. I don't think I can do it perfectly. No. I don't. Well, I don't know. I'm pretty self-controlled. Especially my tongue. You never said anything stupid when you were 16? Come on. It's hard. We're not going to do it perfectly. We're going to mess up. We're going to fall. Dawson. Batman. Why do we fall, Master Bruce? So we can get back up. Why do we fall? So that we can remain humble. So that we can learn and increase dependence and reliance on God. We fall so that we can get back up. That's why he concludes with, or well, he adds, steadfastness. This means perseverance. This means endurance. This means you keep on fighting. This means you don't give up. This is throughout Scripture. Galatians 6, 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Church, I promise you, we will reap in due season if we do not give up. Why can I say I promise you that? Because God promised us that. So all I'm doing is repeating what he said. Hebrews 10.36 For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This past week we read Hebrews 12. Or we all should have. If you read Hebrews 12, you read Hebrews 12, 1-12, which is all about endurance. It's all about the marriage of virtue and faith and endurance. This is what we're called to. This is what is vital in our lives. James 1.12 Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Maybe our reaping isn't until we die. Maybe it's not. Isn't that a worthwhile harvest? Reaping the crown of life? Because we stood fast for God? In due season, we will reap if we don't give up. Church, don't give up. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us. We have been redeemed. We have been bought with the blood of Christ. He stands before the throne of God, making intercessions on our behalf in perpetuity. We have the Holy Spirit within us. Church, do not give up. It gets hard. Some days more so than others. Some weeks more so than others. Some years more so than others. Church, do not give up. Endure. This is what we have been called to. This is what we have been equipped for. Perseverance produces what God intends. Consider these passages. Matthew 24, starting in verse 10. Starting in verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. 
And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Anybody feel like those four verses describe their lifetime? I mean, I listen to the conversations in the church, and yeah, the church, we're very painfully aware of these first four verses. Don't forget verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Endurance means you don't quit the mission just because it gets difficult. Jesus gave us our command. He gave us our commission. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Acts 1.8 You will be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and the ends of the earth. This is what we've been called to. Press on. Don't give up. Don't quit the mission. Endurance produces in us what God desires. Consider Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just think about that for a second. We have peace with God. Man, you talk about an encouragement on the hard days. I'm at peace with God. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in grace. Hebrews also has a great passage where it says, Straighten out your bent knees. Lift your weary hands. Make straight your drooping back. We stand in grace. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. James 1, 2, and 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Church, don't give up. We're with Christ. We have all we need to endure. And we know that enduring produces in us what God desires. What else does endurance do? Endurance gives testimony to the world that what we go through is nothing compared to what we await. Endurance gives testimony to the world that what lies ahead of us is far greater than what afflicts us now. Consider James 5.11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. Anybody know the name Job? Hands up if you've heard the name Job. What's Job famous for? Suffering. James 5.11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job 
and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. When we read through Job, do we ever see where Job got an explanation of why he suffered? Nope. God, why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this? How could you let this happen? Those questions never got answered for Job. James, writing his letter to the church, says, hey, we have the example of Job. Job reminds us of steadfastness. Job's story reminds us of the Lord's grace and mercy and compassion. Job's story is a testimony to Satan afflicting him, to his friends around him, and to the church centuries after him of endurance. Endurance provides testimony to the world. It provides encouragement to other believers. 2 Thessalonians 1.4 Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. Thessalonians, write a letter to Thessalonica. The people in Thessalonica, and he's saying, hey, we boast about you to other churches. Why? Oh, they probably give more than that, right? That's what's like, they probably give the most. I bet the Thessalonica church had the biggest budget. Nope, that's not it. I bet they had the most people in the seats. I bet that's why he's boasting about the Thessalonica church. Nope, that's not it. Why does he boast about the church in Thessalonica? We boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Endurance is testimony. Endurance is a privilege. Endurance is an honor. Endurance is our right to lend testimony, to submit to God's will, to show the world that Jesus is Lord and whatever I have to go through, it's worth it. Church, don't give up. Remember these words. Remember these encouragements. Anybody know the book, The Persecutor? Sergei Kortikov's story? Awesome story. This dude was head of a special forces unit for the KGB whose sole direction was prosecute the church. Not prosecute, persecute the church. I'm talking these guys invented torture methods for Christians that they found. He had an unlimited budget. He was told, hey, go assemble the biggest, baddest, meanest guys you have. He went and he looked for the soldiers who had been kicked out of the army for brutality. He went and got the judo champ of the nation. He went out and got the boxing champ of the nation. Like He assembled the baddest group of people he could, the meanest group of people he could, to go inflict misery on the church. And they show up at a secret church meeting. There's a very attractive young lady on the one side. So his guys are like, oh, we're going to inflict extra pain on her. And they beat her to the point of hospitalization. Sergi thinks it's awesome. A few weeks go by, they go to bust up another secret church gathering. They, hey, there's another secret church. They go to bust up. This same girl is there in her casts, in her bandages, still very clearly feeling the affliction that they just did to her, right? Sergi taunts his guys. And he says, oh, okay, tough guys. Well, you can't even handle like a 20-year-old? 
So now his guys beat her to the point of almost death. All right, good. Now we sent a message. I love this. I wish I was as brave as this girl or this woman. A few weeks later, they show up. This is in his book. Read the book. A few weeks later, they show up at another secret church gathering. This lady's now there in a hospital bed. She can't even walk. Like, she is there in a bed. They had to physically wheel her in. Sergi's biggest, toughest guy, the giant of the group, goes and stands in front of her and he says, if anybody touches her, I'll kill him. And Sergi Kordikov, this man who has done nothing but hate the church, says, what is it about this Jesus that would compel her to risk her life like that? And he steals a copy of the Bible from that church gathering. And in the knowledge of God, in the knowledge of Scripture, Sergi becomes a Christian secretly at night. And he has to flee for his life. Why? Because he saw someone endure. Church, do not give up. Press on. Make every effort. Add self-control. Add knowledge. And add endurance. Consider 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 through 18. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How do we admonish the idle? With Scripture. How do we encourage the faint-hearted? With Scripture. How do we help the weak? With Scripture. And with physically helping. If it's a physical weakness, doing what we can for them. How can you admonish me as an idle brother in Christ if you don't have a knowledge of Scripture to do so? How can you encourage me as a faint-hearted brother in Christ if you don't have the knowledge of Scripture to do so? Make every effort to add to your virtue knowledge. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. That sounds a lot like self-control. When your boss disrespects you in front of the whole assembly line, when your coworker slacks off and blames you to the manager, and now HR is calling you into their office, that takes self-control to not repay evil for evil. To give thanks in all circumstances, to rejoice always, that takes self-control to not get bitter and despondent and cynical. And it takes endurance for all of this. It's wonderful what we've been called to. It's not easy, but why would you want it to be? Was Jesus' life easy? Were the 39 lashes easy? Was the cross easy? So if I want to be like Jesus, why would I want easy? I want holy. I want worthwhile. I want what God wants. May we be a church that wants what God wants. This is, this is the best thing any of us can do with our lives. This is awesome. This is, this is a festal gathering in heaven. 
This is a right to be co-laborers with Christ. This is cool. I can't believe we get this privilege. So let's pursue it with every effort. This week, let's all read Psalm 25 and a specific passage in Acts 8. Acts 8, 26 to 40. Look for what we talked about this morning in, these, in, in Psalm 25 and in Acts 8 in these verses. Look for what we discussed. Apply the Acts model as we pray. How do these lead me to praise God, adore God? How do these lead me to confess to God? How do these lead me to make thanksgiving to God? How do these lead me to ask of God? And then reflect. Does the way I spend my time, does the way I live my life, does the way I conduct myself, does it indicate a self-controlled, steadfast desire to grow in my knowledge of God? Does my approach to life indicate a self-controlled, enduring desire to be like Christ? I've been equipped for it. I've been called to it. Lord, lead me in it. What we're going to do now is we're going to pray. We don't have a closing song, so I'm going to pray. Then we're going to just have a moment of quiet prayer. Just pray between ourselves and God. You know where you are. God knows where you are. You might be the only two people. After that, one of the elders is going to come forward, read a passage in Scripture. But let's begin in prayer now. Lord, Oh, Lord, thank you for the example of Jesus. Thank you for the model of Christ. Thank you that you have called us to high standards and you have equipped us for high standards. That you have called us to excellence and you have equipped us for excellence. What a blessing. You, the heavenly king, have given us a commission. What an honor. Lord, may we, may I, may the elders, may our families make every effort to increase in knowledge and self-control and endurance. May Community Bible Church make every effort for these things. May we run the race with perseverance. May we lift our eyes to things that are above. May we set aside that which so easily entangles and focus on Christ. Teach us. Lead us. Strengthen us. We praise you for the opportunity to pursue this and for the equipping to do so. Hey everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.